0: What would you trust more, a CEO with a goatee or a CEO
1: with this? Goatee, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You could just be a fat miner if you're a winner, life, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I feel like the handlebars are a bit more ruthless, but cowboys might work for like if you're in WA or Goatee
1: somewhere. is just, yeah, fat men have goatees because it covers their- hides oh, a double check. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. More
0: trustable. More trustable. <laughs> All right, mate. So, today we're talking, uh, we're answering questions, actually. We've got a, a bucket load that have been sent through, so I don't know if we'll be able to get through them all. But um, if you want to send us a question, if you want to send Drew or I a question uh, or some feedback for the podcast, you can head to any of the Rask websites and there's a link in the menu that says, ask a question. So, uh, it's it's really simple and you can actually choose from any of the podcasts or wherever you want it to be answered. So, it doesn't have to be this podcast, but if you do want it to be this podcast, it has to be the Australian Investors Podcast and then we'll go through. And we keep it fun. Uh, there are some, I ask you when you go through that um, to give us a fun name. So, there have been a few of those thrown in the mix. Um, one of them, I did a test, uh, to, forgot to exclude that one from the list, um, but We've got a couple of questions. We we're talking about some listed stocks, like we've got like Woodside, uh, a company I don't follow very closely, which is infertile. Really, still don't follow it that well. Got Super ET- interesting, is it? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you know something about it because I don't know much. Um, there's a heap of questions, uh, for everything from portfolio construction, retirement, through to ETFs in individual companies. So, uh, if you want to ask a question, please like jump into jump into those links. Make it a bit of fun. And uh, we'll read it out. I'm hoping that we can do this more regularly, mate. So, yeah, uh, keen to. Yeah, it uh, it'll be a bit of fun. Thinking, calling it two cents. (laughs) I don't know, but it's uh, it's good because you know we got sometimes when you're behind the mic, and you think, well, what can we do as an episode? What would people what are people interested in right now? We just don't know. So, like some of these ETFs that have come through are like in response to a lot of marketing. So people want to know the answer to that. So we'll cover those. Anyway. Enough of my fluffing around, mate.
1: I mean, I get all these types of questions every day as an advisor. Yeah. Clients or potential clients. That's why you write the daily article, right? Essentially, yeah. If, you know... It sounds like it's a lot of work, but about half an hour a day, you capture everything that's happening in global markets, and you're able to kind of answer queries about individual companies before they ever come up.
0: Yeah, which is so handy, because otherwise you just answer the same thing a few times. Exactly. Um, okay, cool. So Drew's daily articles, you can read them on the Inside Network. You can read them um, on the RAS websites, wherever you get your news. So the first question comes from Hoping to Make Millions, and they say WDS, which is the ticker symbol for Woodside Group. Despite the growth after 2020, long-term, it's not showing any growth since late 2009. Is Woodside Group still a good buy for the long-term, i.e. 5 to 10 years if I'm investing?
1: What do you think? This is a stock that got me into investing, unfortunately. Really? This was your first stock? First stock. I read, oh. I think my dad must have told me, you read the financial review, find something you're interested in, go buy it. Yeah. I think I bought Woodside at 15 bucks in about 2005 and right. something, something about the oil price or something back then, as we're talking about now. Yep. Sold it at 30. Thought I was the best investor You would, because it's 33 now. <laughs> exactly, sold it at 30. But uh, yeah, that was I think it was the first stock I ever bought. Really? Yeah. How long did you hold that for to get that return? I think it was only about 12 or 18 months. Um, and oh. it was a lesson, because I sold it, and then it did go up to something like 60 bucks at one stage, but over the long term, it's done essentially nothing.
0: Yeah, because- that was it, this was a massive like resources boom play like coming into the GFC, right? Like yeah, it got to what like sixty two dollars or so, sixty-three bucks in two thousand seven. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So that was the height of the super cycle. Yeah. And now it and if you if you just look at the, the Woodside energy or Woodside Petroleum before that, if you look at that chart, it's just from that point, just a steady decline. yeah Right down into COVID. And then now it's showing some signs of life. For context, what does Woodside Energy do? It's one of, if not Australia's, biggest oil and gas producers, Um, huge, huge um, assets off the coast of WA, um, but also just kind of like involved in all of the Asia Pacific region. Um, Recently got the oil and gas
1: assets from BHP, which is why it's on a lot of people's Watchlist are in their yeah. portfolios. It's right. a bit of a minnow on a global st- scale, or it was. And yeah. when you add BHP's size to it, it becomes a bit of a, a bigger player globally.
0: Yeah, well, it's thrusted it right at the market cap table. So it's $62 billion at the time of recording. Um, both BHP and Woodside managed to pay huge dividends over the past year. I think for quite separate reasons. I think BHP is obviously iron ore and whatever. Yeah. Bit of a separation of assets there. But with Woodside, we've seen... Oil prices skyrocketing, which is linked to uh, gas prices.
1: Yep. And Europe in an energy crisis. I mean, it's just a traditional cyclical company. Yeah. And you're seeing a massive cycle at the moment. And I think the question is, does that cycle continue? What do you reckon? Personally, I think while there's a lot of attention being paid to traditional fossil fuels because of the European energy crisis, I think it's a lot of the sector might have gone too far. And you know, every mm-hmm. strategy is loading up on them at the moment. But it's still clear, you know, we just had the climate change bill passed in Australia. We've had all kinds of climate and disclosure and energy bills passed overseas. I think it's clear that fossil fuel generally is, mm. over the long term at least, is going to go into reverse. But what that looks like for the companies is a probably more challenging conversation, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, this is the thing, right? So just to put it in context, we know energy prices in Europe, it's a huge issue. It's a social issue as much as it is financial markets issue, and more so, um, the price that Woodside earned during its first half of 2022 was $96 barrel of equivalent. So that's up from 44 And zero for a while in March 2020. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Negative, right? Yeah. So um, if you think about that, you know, we're seeing a massive expansion of the, the realized price but the costs are still extremely low. And that's what's enabled it to pay a huge dividend. Is it sustainable? Well, I was just looking at the charts of just LNG prices. Um, they're at record highs, like all-time records. So <laughs> if this is a cyclical business...
1: I mean, I've always seen I'm this as a trading on. stock. Anything yeah. that's is cyclical that is solely reliant on a, you know, a price of one input, it's just a price taker. Yeah. Well, it's always going to be a trading stock. So it's not something you'd... Sit in your portfolio for fifteen years because, as you can see, it's done nothing for fifteen. Mm-hmm. It'll have periods where it significantly outperforms, but it'll likely have periods where it significantly underperforms too. And momentum yeah. drives it. Yeah, true.
0: So, the, I guess the moral of the story is: if you're going to buy a cyclical business, try and buy it at the low. Yeah, I amazing. Mean, you, yeah. you could have probably predicted, tried to predict that since 2013, but it wouldn't have worked out to, for
1: you. So, there's someone told me the old rule is buy when it's got a high PE. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I mentioned that last time as well.
0: Yeah. so now the P is very low, I think it's yeah. seven or, or lower.
1: That's it's- usually the rule because earnings are catching up.
0: So dividends are great, fully franked or thereabouts and it's you know a great big Australian business. If you do want exposure to resources just as an FYI, there is an ETF that does that. I know we're in Australia there's resources companies everywhere, but there is an ETF, Vanek, MVR, ETF does do this. Um, for 35 basis points, they'll put it all together for you.
1: it's worth noting the difference between resources and materials. Yes. Resources subsector is more oil and gas, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So in the um, resources ETF,
0: you've got Woodside as the biggest position, even though BHP is a bigger company. Yeah. So that just gives you a sense of how they're trying to weight things and get that exposure for you. And to be honest, that's probably uh, the way I would go about it is just try and take a all-of-basket approach. But yeah, it's... It's got great cash margins at the mine site. It's got to reinvest. It's capital intensive, blah, 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 blah. I just don't think now is the time to look at it. Um, well, the next question comes from Anonymous You. Um, so, that's the that's the name, wonderful name. Uh, interested in the team's rundown of Infratil. Now, I don't know much about this, Drew, and I saw it's gone from bottom left to top right, so I probably should know a lot more about it
1: than I do. That's why we cram, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yep. 10 minutes out. <laughs> I mean, if Australian Super wants to buy you, you're doing something right and interesting is probably the the key case there. So I think there was an an offer lobbed 2021 maybe by Australian Super to buy the company from memory. Hopefully, prove me wrong if you can. (laughs) I don't want any legal letters coming through. Uh, It does a lot of things, and that's kind of the confusing thing. How do you value it? So. Mm. Uh, renewable energy, they sold tilt renewables, but they're funding more and more renewable energy products, um, uh, major, major projects, yep. uh, they own data centers. They do a lot of niche kind of sustainable operations and they've been buying up. So diagnostic imaging, like radiology throughout, so I think it's New Zealand listed, yeah. but with an ASX listing as well.
0: $3.8 billion was the takeover offer. Yep. And, um, I think that might've been US dollars cause it's from Reuters it's 5.1 billion Aussie.
1: So that's a big deal. Um, diversified asset base, super interesting, but if you look at tradition, like something time, like an 80 times PE, so what is it? Is it an infrastructure company? Is it a growth company? Uh, it's always, I wish I bought it before that, (laughs) when that takeover came around, it's just all the key, you know, thematics that are coming through in the next 10 or 20 years, you know, climate change, healthcare, data, it's kind of got an exposure to all of them. Um, it's Mm. just a matter of how you price it and what you're willing to pay. Um, Yeah, I can see, well, $6.8
0: billion market cap at the moment. So it looks like in terms of knocking that back, it was the right choice. Yep. So companies continued on and up and to the right. Um, Analysts forecasting pretty decent revenue, EBITDA going forward. So um, really interesting business. I know one of our, um, I know Patrick, the former analyst here at Rask, he wanted to get stuck into it, should have at the time. Now it's my bad. Um, So
1: have you got it in portfolios? No, we don't. It's usually probably a bit small. We tend because of, because because of our client base, we tend to not go outside the 200. I think it's probably just outside the yeah right 200. We yeah, barely go outside the 100. Yeah, right. Is that just because? Um, is it just like like liquidity or partially it's- liquidity and then coverage? So how do you how do you get better research or be close to companies that are in the smaller part of the spectrum that maybe one or two analysts are covering? Yeah. Um, and we're building portfolios for retirees, so that's very much combination of income and solid growth but not necessarily looking for the companies that are you know growing exponentially yeah okay not in not direct as a direct stock anyway
0: yeah i don't think it pays franking credits because it's a kiwi company too so maybe that's something that keeps a bit of retirees off um like keep it off watch lists so um yeah really interesting company infratel if you know something about it please reach out to us i i don't know, know enough but um it's a yeah a really interesting business top Top performer, so um, thank you for sending that question in, anonymous you. Don't know who you are, Uh, but uh, thank you.
1: I think it'll be potentially interesting for more takeover offers too. So if you think about private equity, we've got four or five different businesses in there. Uh, I know So Morrison & Co is like an unlisted infrastructure manager owns a reasonable stake in it, and I'm sure there's always going to be a bit of takeover interest in it.
0: That's the thing. Like A lot of these businesses that do play into that renewables, green infrastructure, whatever, there's like no end in sight for... PE companies that want that in their portfolios or even pension funds. There's a real shortage of that and there's a lot of demand for it. So, really interesting. Okay. Dennis C., and this one's probably one for you, mate. Um, Dennis C. asks, What amount should I take off the table? And I think this is in relation to if you have an established portfolio, you're looking to transition, like as in you're thinking about retirement. Um, should I be taking money off the table now? I met a guy downstairs at Chinchin a while back who said he's going to he take was taking all money off the table until November 2022. I asked him why he didn't have a valid reason, but that was, that was his theory. Um, was so, he working there? Hey, or probably, was he? No, he was. A, yeah, it seemed like he knew what he was talking about in other respects, but um, he was, seems to be proven right. I don't know if that's. like <laughs> it has been pretty volatile, but how much do you take off the table? When do you start thinking about it? All of these
1: questions come to mind. Depends what you want so you know we talk a lot about interest rates going up and the challenge that's prov- that's having on you know mortgagees or equity markets and and what returns are doing but on the other side it's increasing turn deposit cash rates and all these low risk investment options so uh, when you take money off depends if you've got enough to mm. retire or if you have to keep if you if you're in a position where you have to keep investing to have any hope of of growing your capital and and not you know running out before the final days of yeah
0: the, was is there like any rule of thumb that you have around what people should have in cash when they try to transition to retirement
1: in just in, in cash we generally say 12 months worth of expenses always in cash cash yep. uh and then you probably have somewhere between 30 you know depending on what your objective is 20 to 30% in lower risk highly liquid uh investments so we see that as you know if everything went to shit for well, <laughs> lack of a better word. Yeah. You've got six or seven years worth of low risk investments. You can sell at what they're worth to pay out your income and let your equity portfolio uh, recover, um, which is, you know, even in the worst case scenario, even the GFC, it only took about three or four years for most equity portfolios to recover.
0: Yeah. Right. Okay. That's a good rule of thumb. Um, then in terms of, I guess, like, so if someone was to have, let's say with was a couple I know we've done a heap of scenarios on this. So Dennis, if you are listening to this, please go back into the back catalog. You could just do a, a Google search for Rask investors, podcast, um, retirement, something like this. We did a mini series recently on passive income where I gave you an, ex- uh, a hypothetical example as well. So Dennis go back in, in the archives and look at that. Um, but in terms of, if someone had to say 500 grand yeah. and they've got, you know, just five years ahead in their working life, um, like, would, I'm guessing you would say keep working, save as much as you can, probably put it in
1: super, um, and because 500 grand is probably not enough, right? Depends how much you're you're going to need in income afterwards. So I pulled up the Canstar figures, yeah, which is saying uh, so the difference between what we we have a rule of thumb that if you you can generate five percent of your Portfolio and in income every year and rely on that. So if it was five hundred, be twenty five grand a year. Yep. Canstar solves that to zero. So
0: if right. you live
1: to your life expectancy, how much would you need? It's actually not far off. So if you re- retired at sixty seven, you need about six hundred and ten thousand to draw an income of fifty k. So it's actually okay. not that far off. If you want to draw an income of fifty, um, it would include Centrelink as well. Uh, if you retire at sixty, it's seven hundred forty three thousand. So the the change is. Barely significant.
0: Yeah, it depends on how long you want that income to go.
1: Yeah, but, definitely. I but, mean, what part of our advice, you know, we we're talking about trying to reverse retirement, and talk about the golden years rather than you know yeah. retirement and yeah. just kind of you know tra- trending off. Uh, and I think a lot of it isn't actually just the investments when it comes to or the the amount you have in savings when it comes to working. It's actually positive in terms of transitioning into retirement if you have. Yep. purpose and keep going back into work so uh you can even look beyond the financial part towards yeah i think everyone if they're enjoying it and it's and it's not toiling then should keep working as long as they can
0: yeah i know there are a bunch of issues around like um employment you know just causation correlation lower levels of dementia these types of things like a lot of um social and psychosocial conditions yeah tend to be put off by um remaining gamefully employed and doing something like that having that purpose okay so um in terms of what amount to take off the table I think just one final thing on here de- uh, for Dennis is that um you know we if we had a dollar for every time someone comes to us and says the market's about to crash I'm going to take it all out honestly it's incredible we'd be very wealthy um newspapers don't help uh, yeah the daily news cycle is not playing to your favor particularly when there's a war and in Europe, and there's high inflation and a lot of uncertainty. And at the end of the day, you've got your long term investment portfolio. It's about sticking to it. It's about regularly adding if you're an accumulator, um, just setting yourself up because we know it's time in the market, not timing the market. And I have to repeat that again and again and again. A lot of people ask that question, but yeah,
1: Com- of course. Yeah, compounding returns are like the most powerful part of investing. And I think one of the big parts is if you're worried about. What the potential outcome is from here it's actually building a portfolio that's exposed to multiple outcomes mm-hmm. so not just worrying about if it's inflation what if there's low inflation what are the other alternatives and having assets that work well in each so and explaining that is what part of what we do so mm. people are less likely to make decisions to sell at the worst possible time
0: yeah yeah i like it mate um archie Asks a question. we we'll have to be a little bit quick on this one. Sorry, Archie, you've asked asking about SKN ASX. <laughs> yeah, I had a look at this, Archie, and uh, I think it's skin elements. I think, yeah, this yeah. has to be because you said ASX. It's down 82% year over year. Not sorry uh, if I'm joking in my tone, but the reason that I laugh about it, Archie, is that it's a $7.8 million company. So it is tiny. Um, when you get down to this size, it, this is private company size, to be honest and even then
1: you know it's not huge so um question would be what's the purpose of being listed because it wouldn't be cheap to be on the asx
0: yeah they'd probably be better off as a private company but a lot of these things turn into something else like someone comes along and coins it up but it's i guess it's down 78 percent in the year so that's probably why it's 7.8 percent uh, 7.8 million market cap but um so yeah i, I guess I, neither of us really follow this company closely um, just pulling up the, the report for the business, um, it looks like, and if I just go down, I'm just jumping through to. It's like disinfectants and
1: and yeah. other treatments, yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, revenue up 387% at 1.4 million. Uh, still reporting a loss of 1.6 million. Um, if we just go to the balance sheet, when it comes to these micro caps, the first thing, or nano caps, the first thing I look at is cash flow, you know, risk on the balance sheet. Um, as bugger all in the way of borrowing so that's good um it's got a fair bit in receivables but in terms of assets versus liabilities it's pretty strong from the outset in terms of cash flow i mean it's reporting a loss so 1.5 million dollar cash outflow and um it's only got uh dollars of cash at the end of the year so if it keeps going backwards it needs to keep raising capital that's yep. the moral of the story and so, more dilution and yeah yeah um Sorry, can't be any more. We can't be any more help to you, Archie. Maybe uh, check out our friends at Strawman. I see if any of the private investors over there have something to offer. But um, very small company, so it should be uh, approached as such. And uh, when we're building diversified portfolios, this is definitely well outside
1: where it, um, you know, our core portfolios. Position sizing is key. Yeah. Keep it small.
0: Yep. Uh, Charbs asks. Oh no, you're going to skip the. Oh no, the, the bingo, bingo. Yeah, bingo bongo walla fella. So that was um and then the message was uh Owen is cool and this is a test by me. So that was <laughs> that was actually me testing the <laughs> You are not getting enough questions? Is that yeah, why you do? Like, yeah. is anyone answering, asking questions? <laughs> yeah, we need to put questions in the next month. No, uh, so what happens is whenever I do like tests for our if I'm anything develop, developing something on the website, I never make it test one, two, three. I never I always make it fun. So if someone in our team comes across it. It looks strange. Um, so, if there's a thing on our for, there's like a dozen accounts with like um, the username uh, Juan Hernandez Garcia. Uh, and people always were well, like, well, what does this mean? And it's actually just the, the fake name that I set up for all the test accounts. <laughs> so, they think someone's spamming. It. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> so, Chubbs asks Can you briefly explain what is the Feeder Shares Global Royalties ETF, nope. R O yl you get my ribs again <laughs> drew's uh, just for those of you that aren't watching drew does have something going on with his ribs every time he laughs it hurts so i'll try and keep it as funny as possible <laughs> so r o y l is this new etf from BetaShares. Mm. details sparse <laughs> um you could say so uh, this etf by the pr announcements here's what it says ROYL will provide cost-effective exposure to a portfolio of global companies that earn substantial revenue through royalty income, royalty-related income, and intellectual property income, including mining royalties and IP intangible royalties. So, well, I guess royalties are just the things that people uh, or companies earn or certain institutions earn for, you know, mining tenements, for... um, like intellectual property as it relates to like creative arts for pharmaceuticals if they don't want to produce themselves they'll just outsource and collect the royalty so this happens quite frequently and there are etfs overseas that do something similar to this in the united states it's a bit more of a developed industry in that royalties tend to spin off from infrastructure assets from a bunch of different things and you can invest in them separately but this etf based on what i can read online it's marketed as invest in David Bowie and all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's just going to invest in companies that have royalty, royalty streams. Royalty streams. Yep. So, we don't really have that much information. I couldn't find a PDS. I don't know if you found anything.
1: And the closest thing you'll see is Deterra. It's a DRR yeah. listed on the ASX. Uh, and I think a lot of these royalties are owned by companies, whether it's Sony, if you're talking about David Bowie, or you know, probably not Sony yep. or BHP that own, that have royalty streams over multiple assets that they own. Some of them own personally too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, essentially you're just looking like a bond or a, yeah. if you think about it, that every time a David Bowie song plays, you get paid, the company gets paid one cent. Uh, and then the challenge of that is how do you value a bond that's determined by usage mm. and not necessarily price usually volume for mining how do you determine a value and what's your discount rate Um, and who's determining the discount rate because that can change incredibly quickly so DeTerra trades on I think they've only got a few royalties Yeah, Um, I'm not
0: familiar I know at a high level what the business does it does like uh, resources royalties right
1: a couple of iron ore royalties I think yeah right Uh, and it trades on a PE of 12 so not particularly expensive not not overly cheap either but Mm -hmm. you know you're constantly going to get cash flow from it maybe it's a little bit variable each year mm-hmm. uh, but the question is what's what's the value if, if bond yields go up does it devalue that income stream significantly um, and I assume there's eventually legislative risk
0: mm. one of the things I guess there's two things that I thought about when I started reading articles about this ETF is the first is if it's giving you exposure through companies probably the number one thing is how do they filter companies so how do they filter like companies, do they have to earn X percent of revenue or is it something
1: else? Yep. Um, what index are they tracking? Yeah, how yep. do
0: they actually do get the exposure and what ends up in the portfolio is probably going to be very... It could go to one extremely other. You could end up with a portfolio that looks very similar to a lot of other ETFs just with a different skin. Yep. So you want to know exactly what's in it, what's in the filtering process. Um, and at the end of the day, something that we always... Uh, emphasize is that you're going to be taking equity market risk because you're investing in companies. It doesn't matter what they do, you're still going to be taking the risk, just like the uh, market risk of the stock market. So keep that in mind. Uh, it's probably not as pure as what people think. Like saying that it's like you're investing in David income, yeah, yeah, or something like that. It you, never there's goes a lot out of style. between that marketing and what you're actually getting um so it's gonna i'd imagine there's going to be high amounts of tracking error and something like this just as just guessing and it's probably going to be a fairly substantial fee we don't know the details but i mean yeah there, yeah there's a few things i could say about it but i just think keep your keep your like your eyes open to what you actually get inside etf and without knowing much detail i'd say it's not necessarily something I'd be looking to put in a core portfolio. I like
1: to wait a couple of years. It definitely would sit on the satellite and I would think it would be quite a momentum yeah. driven, you know, during periods of volatility, I'm sure these royalty streams have become attractive. Yeah. And then when, when it settles down, like the the share price of Deterra as an example, it's just constantly flowing, yeah. kind of sentiment driven.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's like a shark tooth, isn't it? If you zoom out a bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I hope that helps in some way. Uh, get to that question there, Sharbs. Um, just also be mindful of the marketing that goes into these ETFs. There are numerous studies that show that thematic ETFs, typically the worst time to invest in them is at the start. So um, just don't be afraid to be a little bit patient. Um, I don't really know what happens in the short term, but you know there are a few studies that show um, the best time to launch an ETF is when there's peak uh, investor interest. So um, Warden Munger Buffett, uh, actually... So this is a good question from Ward and Buffett. There's a lot of energy questions coming through. I was wondering if you could cover Ample. Their 2022 report was released a few days ago and they have doubled their profits in the last year. So was, I believe it was a half-year report, um, but that's okay. Um, the company's been in and out of the news, Ample, for well, the last few years in particular because of the rebranding in particular. Yeah. I don't know if you know much about it. What do they used to be called? Caltex. Caltex. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then so this this has been in and out of the news. Firstly, like a couple of years ago, not even going that far back, all of the big um, like uh, oil refineries here in Australia were really under pressure because yep. they were getting swamped by cheap fuel and oil out of Asia, and our Australian refiners just couldn't pay for their you know facilities. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, energy prices have skyrocketed. And all of these businesses all of a sudden are reporting, as you say, uh, Warden Munger Buffett, uh, they're reporting huge profits. So again, this is a capital intensive business. PE ratio looks like it's graded eight times. Um, yield, decent, but you've got to be mindful of the fluctuations
1: in oil prices. How long will we stay this high? Don't know.
0: Really? yeah i think their yeah.
1: royalty margins just surged significantly didn't they yeah. during or not royalty they're refining margins that's the thing um, yeah and then political pressure came on that and but just not long before they were seeking subsidies weren't they just to
0: yeah just to keep it on care and maintenance yeah. so um you know there, i mean it, from a national security perspective we want businesses like this to be a success so we can produce a lot of our own oil here in australia we produce enough of it let's refine it here in australia as well rather than sending it to yeah singapore isn't it where we but during um during covid all of these businesses i remember because i went on sky biz and talked about this that a lot of these businesses were shuttering refineries because they just couldn't keep up with uh like imports from asia so you know in the space of two years we've gone from worst case scenario to goldilocks and that's just serving as a reminder for us that we've got to be mindful of how capital intensive these businesses are, what they do with their capital when they are in a good period. Like I think Woodside paid $2.1 billion billion of dividends, Um, but they've got huge capex bills and opex, which is operating expenditure. So I just be mindful that the last thing you wanna do is buy at the top. A lot of these businesses will still be around for another 10 years and you might be able to get a better chance to buy them.
1: I mean, the the market clearly doesn't believe that it's sustainable because the PE is 10. It's not telling you they expect a significant amount of growth. Um, so it could be that you're buying it, not that it's going to fall off a cliff. It doesn't mean it's going to fall off a cliff, but that all the, it's had the near perfect operating conditions, uh, and, it, and it's probably going to be challenging to keep up with expectations for the next few years. Could well be that it just pumps out income for a few years. But um, analysts are currently forecasting pretty strong top line growth, so
0: uh, and along with pretty strong dividends for the next two years. But a lot of when you invest in the stock market, there are effectively two valuations you need to understand. One is the the, the valuation between now and say five years into the future and then the, the valuation from five years on which we call the terminal value that's basically like saying what's the valuation between now and when i can sell it and what price do i get when i sell it and for a lot of these resources companies the hard part is estimating what happens in year five onwards because that's when you'll get the majority of your capital returned to you as an investor i personally don't like the uncertainty so i prefer businesses that are in control of their prices, typically not selling commodities, typically not relying on government subsidies or anything
1: like that. Definitely.
0: Yep. Great question, though, because I think this is this is why we do this. We wouldn't ordinarily talk about a lot of these uh, resources or resources-linked companies. And uh, Ample's a great business. You can go into the servos, and it's great. Like, I, went, I was here on the weekend. Yeah. And um, it's wonderful. But uh, from an investment perspective, I just prefer more predictable business models. The next question comes from And, and I'm not sure if this – is the actual, this A-N-D, it's a capital A though, so maybe it was on purpose. Um, and says, what website can I use to compare different companies' accumulated returns, both capital and income growth? I've seen you use it, Owen, on your podcast, but I can't remember its name. So I'm happy to fill in here. So the accumulated returns are important because a lot of websites uh, just report, report price returns.
1: Like our website just reports price returns. And benchmarks reinvest dividends. Yeah, that's it. Exactly.
0: So you can see, like if you compare, say, I don't know, some like an index um, to a stock, you might miss out on a lot of the dividends. And that's typically what is explained. Uh, Four out of every $10 from the stock market typically comes from dividends in Australia. So you're missing a huge part. Now, Market Index, which is the most popular website for this type of thing, it just says return on its website. I don't think it says anything else. The one that's probably most accessible is Morningstar. Yeah. So Morningstar-
1: Total uh, shareholder return.
0: Yeah. And if you just, uh, you don't have to like log in for this. If you do log in, um, you can see more, but you just go search for the company, go trailing returns. Like Telstra, over 10 years has, in total return terms, over 10 years has returned 5.1%. The index, 9.4%. So not very good for Telstra. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even though it plays a great dividend. Maybe once you include franking credits, you- yeah,
1: compare it to CSL, there's plenty of charts that show total shareholder return. Yeah, why don't I just bring that up? This income.
0: Yeah, um, and I think you're doing the right thing. Like, there In Australia, one of the things that we try and push people to on our websites is, um, I think it's XTN, is, it, is the index symbol, which is the ASX 200 total returns. Yeah. Then you can adjust as well. There is an index from S&P that adjusts
1: for franking credits. So- Yes, that's the challenge. That uh, it can depend on your tax rate, yeah. How you're measuring. If you're in a zero tax environment, then you get the whole return. But they're probably wary of reporting it because everyone has a different tax rate. For sure, that's like managed funds,
0: which we can talk about all day about turnover and about liquidity events, all this sort of stuff. Um, CSL total return twenty two percent per year over ten years versus the index nine point four. Pretty impressive, not bad. So uh, that's how you do it, and. Um, just be aware of a lot of the websites. I don't think Ticker does total return either. So,
1: um, we yeah. use a system called X plan owned by Iris, which yep. is an advice platform. Uh, and that allows us to kind of track historically, but also forward and re- reports, income and growth and an internal rate of return for every investment. Hmm. So pulls it pulls it apart. Yeah. It yeah, pulls it apart and we report to clients every quarter. Ah, oh, cool. So, yeah, because,
0: and then there'll be other things like FactSet, and I'm sure CapIQ, the actual CapIQ can do it, but more professional yeah, services. But you're yeah. going to be paying quite a bit, Connor, for that. So you can just use Morningstar for free. It's uh, on their website. So, i oh, sorry, not Connor. And the next one is from Connor who asks, what pathway would you recommend for someone wanting to become a professional investment analyst, specifically for someone who is looking to change professions having already studied in a non finance field? Great question. Do you have another any, challenging one? Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, you know what? So I know you like the Animal Spirits podcast. There was a question that they dealt with. I think it was about five years ago or so. That's right back when the podcast first started. And the question from someone writing in was, "Well, would you do the CFA or the CFP?" Now, quite different things. Yep. CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst designation. CFP, Certified Financial Planner. You've done the CFP. Yep. Would you do it Very again? Very different.
1: Yeah, I think I'd do it again. It's more, I feel like it's more broad based. I did the first unit of CFA. Yeah. Failed miserably <laughs> <laughs> and took a career in a different, completely different direction. That's it. I'm going to
0: Financial planning.
1: <laughs> I was actually unemployed. So I tried to do the CFA for a while, I bought $1,000 worth of books, which I still have most of. Oh, uh, good reference. And then switched back to financial advice when, when I joined the business I'm in now. Um, I mean, I'm kind of anti extra education (laughs) at some point. Like every single person we meet now is a CFA. Yeah. uh, Or, um, you know, just going to hopefully not too many people listening to it. But (laughs) like there's so much experience you get from doing rather than than studying. And there's some quotes out there that talk about, you know, most mba you know most people that have run a small business have got more business knowledge than people mm. with an mba i'm going to get in so yeah, much trouble yeah, you're saying get, that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um i think the natural start's got to be applied finance having a basic understanding of how financial markets work if you haven't done a commerce degree or yeah. a business degree incredibly important mm. um and then if you really want to be an analyst working for a fund manager, you don't have a choice you have to have a cfa yeah. essentially or any or a pension fund or anything
0: yeah uh if you're in if you want to go to the united uh, united kingdom um, you basically have to have CFA level two to speak to retail clients. Yeah. Um, you can there are other ways to do it, but that's the standard that it's got to. And the UK economy and the financial regulator is very stringent, so it gives you a sense of kind of how how they think about things. But I actually, because I, you know, I teach like a value investing program and all that. I actually did a study on this quite a while ago, and I just surveyed, you know, from publicly available data, the top buy side funds. So when you go into investing and in in particular in um, funds management, there are two sides that you can go to. There's the buy side, which is like fund managers like we've had on the show, like you think of Monroe Partners, Magellan, all that stuff. They're on the buy side. They're actively deciding which shares they want to buy and include in their portfolio. That's pretty much the gold standard for most people that are an analyst. On the other side, we have the sell side. The sell side includes brokers. It includes investment banks that publish research on companies that you might not want to own yourself or your boss might not want to own their fund, but it's still an important part because that research gets fed out to financial planning groups, to wealth management groups, so on and so forth. And when I looked at this for all undergraduate degrees, uh, for all degrees overall, basically every, like it was like 65% of the people and the funds that I looked at, both both analysts and portfolio managers, 65% had the Bachelor of Commerce, 22% had partially completed the Masters of Applied Finance and 28% CFA. Now, if we just look at portfolio managers, 70% had the Bachelor of Commerce, 40% CFA Charter Holder, and 21% had got part of the way through their Masters of Applied Finance. So, what does this mean? Well, I honestly think that if you're going to move into finance, and in particular investment research, and you want to work for one of these funds, like Drew says, you probably need to, it's table stakes. For a lot of these places, um, personally, I would love to see someone with experience. A lot, of, whether that's in finance or not, you basically just need to prove your wares. Yeah. Do you understand how to build a cash flow? Just kind of cash flow analysis. Do you understand valuation? Do you speak the jargon? Um, I get a lot of questions on this. I would. The Masters of Applied Finance is great. The best ones through Macquarie um, Uni. Uh, it does take it out here. I think it's Saturdays and and weeknights which would be brutal. You can do like Kaplan or something like that online. Not as prestigious, but you get the job done. Uh, And I always say to people, there are so many applicants for these jobs, like so many, but you need to prove your experience. Even if you're a seasoned, an older person that's been doing this wrong, start an anonymous blog, jump onto Twitter, try and connect with people, do
1: some deep dives. Um, Just prove that you can do it. And there's more PMs and fund managers thinking... In different directions now, so yeah. it's not just straight up analysts, but there's you know ESG analysts who focus on a different part. Great point. Yeah. There's there's groups that actively employ intelligent people from different sectors, like mathematics yep. or um, you know psychology, yep. but all kinds of random parts. So, investor, a fund manager looking for an edge in every part of their business. So, um, yeah, just having some experience, I just said start investing. It's yeah. the easiest way
0: sometimes, like you said, yeah, you just start investing, but you like you just alluded to, you can find a, a side door into one of these places. Yep. Chances are you're going to have to do the things that the other analysts or PM doesn't want to do. So maybe that means you ha- half your week is like as a BDM. A lot of those smaller boutique funds start up that way. Yep. They might have someone that understands finance, but can do the selling as well, speak with financial planners, go out and um, prepare documents, do all that sort of stuff as well. Um, because if you get in on the ground floor on one of these boutique funds that ends up doing, uh, like brilliant numbers in terms of, you know, market beating returns for five or 10 years, just being there on day one or thereabouts, is going to be a huge advantage to you. You're going to, you're going to earn very well, but you're also going to, you know, build a name for yourself regardless. Yeah, Definitely so i'll be a link in the show notes to this um, little brief study that i did but um so just in summary you've got to speak the language so that means getting something on your cv that says you can do it if you come from a different discipline like engineering or something that can actually be to your advantage if you find the right fund managers so kind of great question and good luck with that uh francis says uh solid name by the way like this one's probably a sensible name, Francis. Um, I'd like to hear your view on the CLW Charter
1: Hall Long Whale REIT. Thoughts? Don't mind it. It's uh, mm. part of our model. Yep. Uh, super interesting. We've always, you know, Drew loves REITs, was your initial comment here. <laughs> I don't, don't love REITs. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're, they're They, are, <laughs> <laughs> they're, I mean, they're, they can be a if the timing's right i think they can be a great way to get exposure to a specific sector or asset class um particularly the, you know given the fact that they're they publish their net asset value so you can get an, you can usually buy them at a discount to what they're worth so i mean charter whale 550 odd properties, 7 billion uh 99.9 percent um hmm. what's non-vac what's the Least? Essentially, no vacancy. Yeah. Uh, and an average, so long whale just means weighted average lease expiry, which means there's 12 years on average to each of their leases comes up. And the portfolio is everything from logistics centers, so like Woolworths to service stations mm-hmm. uh, all around Australia, I think some in New Zealand. Um, we, it's in our models. Uh, it's performed poorly the last few months. Essentially, investors mm-hmm. have sold it off on concerns that the valuation rate or the cap rate, which is about 4.35%, is going to be impacted by higher bond yields mm. so if bond yields are higher term deposits are higher people want to pay less for property so at 4.35 they're suggesting it's it's overvalued and the net asset value kind of shows that it's net asset value $6.17, and it's trading about 4.98 or so so a mm. significant discount to net asset value um i think it's one of those stocks that gets caught up in in the bond yield sell-off you know it's property it's bond yield driven Let's get out and that's why there's a pricing differential whereas the types of assets they are holding aren't selling at 30 percent mm. discounts they're just they're barely even trading if they are mm. or they're selling at reasonable prices I well, so. got long whale so exactly. you you don't, don't need to sell sell no. have to yeah exactly
0: so would you then that's all sounds pretty compelling would you then if you were thinking about this investment now it's a long way from its NTA
1: would you wait until you you get some sort of I mean, I know you you have it in- I think it's a long term. You could buy it now and hold it for a decade if you wanted to. It's quality assets constantly turning over. They're always acquiring more. They're pretty- Chud is pretty aggressive in in finding new assets and people are still keen for it.
0: Mm. How about- So we- um, I've had a few folks on the show not too long ago talking about this and talking about how uh, some REITs have like inflation protection built into them so they can adjust and so on and so forth. I- <laughs> So you think you can just kind of like add this to a portfolio? You can take a regular distribution. Um, You don't necessarily need to wait for, I guess, bond prices to stabilize
1: and then wait for it to. They kind of already have. So they, you know, bond yield ten-year bond yield peaked at four percent or close to four, and it's back at about three point two or three point three now. So the the bond market's telling you something slightly different, and I think people are starting to get concerned that the economy may not be as resilient. Yeah. as it is, and inflation may actually fall off pretty quickly if you know things like rent and uh, oil fall in the US particularly. Yeah. So I think there's always a risk that bond yields keep going up and they keep selling it off and there's a negative view on the sector, but I think it's in the right thematics and, and sectors at the moment and you're getting a pretty good deal. It's probably a question of when you sell it. You'd probably sell it closer to NTA.
0: Mm. Yeah, okay. I like it because we hear a lot about cap rates um, getting squeezed, but it's probably we're probably there now. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's just um, in to wake up and you realise that. But um, okay, interesting. Because and so maybe I'll just be very selfish and throw one more question in, mate. So in a portfolio, is there like a an upper bound for how much you would
1: want in REITs, generally speaking? Like I mentioned It probably depends it. how, like we generally say a listed stock would be half the level of a managed fund because it's less diversified. Mm-hmm. This sort of thing where it holds 550 properties, well, you can't get much more diversified mm-hmm. than that. Uh, I mean, we usually cap direct holdings anywhere from sort of 2 to 4% of a portfolio, okay. just on volatility. As you see, it's down 30%, so you don't want to hold 30% in your portfolio mm-hmm. that, that might fall like that.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Okay, good. Good one. Great question, Francis. Um, investing bandit. That's a name. I like that, Investing Bandit. (laughs) Uh, Very simple question too. Advice on ABB reporting season. So this is Aussie Broadband. Does over-the-top internet connections. Aussie Broadband, great customer service. Am an advocate. Don't get paid to say that, (laughs) but I am an avid customer and I I love the service from Aussie Broadband. If you haven't already tried them, it's worth a crack. Uh, So Aussie Broadband uh, is listed on the stock exchange. Hasn't been listed for too long. Started out life below two bucks a share, rose rapidly uh, up until earlier this year, been twenty twenty two to around about five dollars ninety, and it has collapsed recently to two dollars forty six. So it's halved. Um, thing is, still achieving very strong growth, still posting you know higher and higher revenue numbers. Um, Estimates going forward are very strong top line growth, very strong top line growth and also earnings per share growth. So analysts are guiding for much stronger growth. I think maybe this is uh, partially, this is something to do with increasing competition, but also people thinking, well, how much faster can it grow, right? What price are we prepared to pay for this? Did it get ahead of itself? Yeah, probably. It's very growth oriented in a inflationary environment. Perfect, perfectly brand. timed
1: IPO, I think, wasn't it
0: as well? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you have closely followed it, but um, Aussie Broadband off opened the offer to their broadband subscribers. And I think that was oversubscribed, that component of it. Yeah. Because people just wanted, they just couldn't get enough. So if you are a company with significant brand loyalty, I think there's a lesson to take away here, which is that um, use your mailing list to sell your stock. Um, yeah. You know, engage people that way because they've done such a good job of it. So, in FY '22, revenue rose to 547 million from 350. EBITDA was 39.4. That's normalized from 39. Um, so, in terms of residential con- connections, up from 363,000 to 464. Total services at 738,000 from 525. So, this, in, this for the most, in, for all intents and purposes, this is a company that has offered a service that is commoditized and, and it's done it in a way that has really just caught on with people. Yeah. Um, and so you can see why our customers love it and it's
1: recommending a lot of their friends and yeah, it's, it's kind of taken off. I feel like uh, you know, the NBN, uncertainty around the NBN has probably been hurting it as well. Yeah, it kind of fell into the tech growth basket when it listed. Yeah. But if you see <clears throat> you know, the NBN stop looking at trying to make profit and Cut wholesale costs. Well, they've got an opportunity to extract more profit and cash flow. I assume that's what what investors or the market's worried about at the moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's super competitive market. But brand loyalty is something you pay for, and whether they can expand that into multiple other sectors eventually.
0: Mm. So um, I tell you who I tell you, investing bandit who uh, follows this company really closely is a company called Lachlan Burr Jensen. He is on Twitter, writes for the Inside Network and Rask occasionally. Um, so it's Lachlan. You'll find him on Twitter. Great question on Aussie Broadband. I think as a you know, a growth company in this type of cycle, you've got to understand the powers that, that, that play. Where does it sit in this competitive landscape? And one of the things that you can do to determine the kind of pricing power or lack thereof of companies is to do something called a Porter's Five Forces. I don't know if you've ever used this. This is like where you look at a company from, it's basically four different angles. Yeah. So you look at it from... Competitive strength, um, supplier strength, customer strength, and you look at from all these different angles, and you look at a company and you try and determine who in this uh, value chain has the power. And um, when you're over the top like this, you basically have to get your competitive advantage through intellectual property, through your co- yeah, yeah. customers. So, how like you've got to pay a lower multiple for a company that doesn't have true pricing power. Stevo asks. Of all, potential, uh, of all potentially oversold companies in the past 12 months, what are your thoughts about Newx? I'm
1: not allowed to comment on this one. No? Former? My- I bought it twice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, pre-IPO I <laughs> heard? No, 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 it was pre-IPO.
1: After it fell the first time. Oh, wow. Well, so yeah. you just caught but it the thing is if and then again. Pre-IPO, you're still down 90. If you bought it after it fell, you're still down 90. 85 percent so
0: yeah so X does uh software for um investigate investigative data analysis so if you're a company like asic which is the australian uh, financial regulator you might use data um use this service they sell it on uh, subscription but also as modules and as like licenses companies transitioning to selling via subscription and consumption based usage which is a a, a play to try and get it in into kind of, I guess, a more scalable business model where it can grow and without really having to do much. The thing that really uh, you should know when you look at a company like this is when a company that sells a lot of software, you've got to look at the um, income statement and you've got to compare that to the cash flow statement because this company actually, if I'm not mistaken, capitalizes a lot of its intellectual property and the spend on uh, R&D. So you can see looks like great profitability because it's capitalizing a lot and then you look at the cash flow statement and you see the cash outflows You're like well okay material you also see a lot of amortization. So my advice is don't necessarily look at something like EBITDA maybe look at proper free cash flow from the cash flow statement before Definitely. you make an inference about the company's performance. Don't buy falling knives is the other... Dead cat bounce, don't buy a falling knife. Yes. <laughs> so just 101 of investing. So if you don't know the context around NUIX, NUIX is a, as I just painted the picture, that sounds like a pretty interesting software company, should be like growth focused, blah, 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 blah. IPO'd by Macquarie. Um, subsequently, crashed and crashed in a spectacular way it's a lot of news that we don't need to maybe get into about um what happened around the time of the ipo about prospectus forecasts about insiders class actions currently underway um which always always hangs over the top but in terms of the the business uh as kind of just a general look and feel new ceo Um, new chair, I believe. So you're getting into- Super interesting business. Super interesting business. One of the things to keep in mind when a company's been in it, not necessarily private equity, but it kind of is with Macquarie. um, If it's been in a situation like that, you've always got to know who you're buying from when it comes to IPOs. And if you're buying from a company that is extremely intelligent, like Macquarie is, got a lot of sharp people there, how like what's your advantage in understanding the business? <laughs> Sorry, Drew, uh, you didn't buy in the IPO. You bought not in the IPO. You bought post yeah. IPO. You it you're catching it? It's undervalued. Was that saying still it's, is turnaround seldom turn. Um, but, but if you look at it, the business itself these days, there's a lot of stock held by Macquarie still. But if you look at it, I think it's about 160 million, Drew. I could be mistaken off the top of my head in terms of uh, the ACV, which is the um, contracted value. And so if you look at that, it's about 160 million. Um and the business isn't actually that big anymore because it has fallen so far. Yeah. So you're getting down to kind of like deep value territory on a business that should be getting better. So the value the classic value play is you buy a company that's not as bad as people think. This is probably the one. Yeah, I mean, lot, lesson for
1: me, yeah, yeah, is uh get your core right and position size <laughs> appropriately. And I think you know stop losses are difficult in a core portfolio, but I think if you're going to have X 200 kind of stocks, maybe it was in the 200, uh, have a stop loss in that yeah. outside of, you know, in, in your speculative kind of holdings.
0: Yeah. And that's where this business would probably fit. So just from, um, I don't know if this includes unlisted stocks. So I don't know where this data comes from. Uh, 250 mil market cap uh, against a, annualized contract value of around uh, 140. Um, as I said, though, on a free cash flow basis, it went negative last year because you, it looks like on paper, it looks like an EBITDA, you know, a pretty, yeah you know, positive, right? But if you get down to f- the cash flow statement and you deduct, you know, everything that's not included in that kind of uh, amortized R&D, um, you get to, what is it, even just deducting, so $30 million cash receipts, Deduct fifty one million dollars for net investing cash flows. Um I don't know if it's got any leases to disclose have uh, two point seven million. So you're going backwards to the tune of about twenty five million a year. Yep. Um they're investing heavily, they say, in new technologies to try and add on packages. Uh, interesting at these levels, Steve are Interesting, definitely more interesting than it was. <laughs> Sorry, Drew. <laughs> I just don't make me laugh. <laughs> I'm just closing out <laughs> Drew here. I'm just looking into the screen at you, Stevo.
1: Um Yeah, you know, interesting. Definitely. S- so I, I still like the company. Obviously uh, growth expectations got ahead of uh where they actually were. They great at clearly greater parts of what they do. So yeah. Yeah. I can't give you a buy on it though.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just it's extremely volatile. So it could be one of those ones where it does turn, um, because it's got such a loyal customer base. But there's two sides to every business. They've got a clean up that cost side of their their balance of their income statement uh, and the cash flow. I'd want to see it cash flow positive. There's a there's a thing, Steve that, you know, there's a saying that turnarounds seldom turn. You can wait for a company to turn typically before you look at reinvesting into it. So keep that in mind. All right. Final question we've been through a lot today, Drew, which is build this is from Building Wealth in Silence. <laughs> that's a great name. It's probably that's probably the a podium finish. Building wealth in silence says Best exposure ETFs to India. I love it how people are just like very concise with their words. Give us Google. Keywords. Um, so, best exposure to India. Now, if you go back in time, just quickly, if you go back in time and you Google ETF Securities India, the first thing that pops up that's not their website is this podcast channel where we interviewed Kanish Chug. So, you can go and you can hear it straight from Kanish. Um, But there are two ETFs as far as, I couldn't, and this is like active listed funds, I couldn't see any others.
1: There's a group called India Avenue, I think, which is a a fund manager or a managed fund, not an ETF. Yeah. Yeah. They, um, I think they're based in Sydney, India
0: Avenue. Yeah. And the way that, because I met with those guys and the way that that fund works is, actually context matters here. So when you invest in India, uh, it's a little bit different to, us equities and things like that to invest up until a little while ago to invest in india you needed to be in india or be you know an indian citizen and those types of things it changed recently because the markets became a little bit more open but uh, india avenue um they actually used uh their portfolio managers and everything was on the ground in india and the australian vehicle kind of just invested through them yeah um I'm not 100% sure how the beta shares one works, but there are two options on the ASX. Did you did you know much about these, or do you want me to
1: riff for a little while? You can. I'll have a slightly different view.
0: Okay, yeah. There are two ETFs uh, that invest here. There's the ETF Securities ETF, which is slightly lower fee than the beta shares one. They launched about the same time, by the way. Um, and the the ETF from uh, beta shares is basically, it, 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 it's it's a fundamental ETF, so it's not traditional market cap weighted, meaning that, It invests in things like um, low debt to equity, uh, really playing into that quality factor, return on equity, and those types of things. Whereas the ETF Securities one invests in just traditional uh, top 50 stocks. Very similar names in the top 10 holdings, if you do look at them, because it is a quite top-heavy index. Um, Even though there are quite a few listed entities, it is quite a top-heavy index, like some of those Middle Eastern stock exchanges as well, where there are a few names that relevant around the world but then not much beyond that yeah um so you could invest in either of those. personally the the, B, the beta shares etf is actually bigger um which i'm surprised about because i feel like the etf securities just very, splitting hairs a bit here but i feel like the etf securities etf may be a better quality etf in terms of
1: more pure yeah index. more
0: pure yeah. like if you're looking to cash in on india it's just there are some criticisms about using a market cap weighted. I know that there are in some of these emerging markets, but it's very simple and it's a bit lower cost and you kind of know what you're going to get. And obviously, India is a very attractive uh, economy because it's growing so fast and things like IT and that are huge. So I don't know. I guess the question here, Drew, was which of these ETFs? I'd probably err on the side of the um, ETF Securities, ETF, it has performed slightly better. Both of them have huge tracking error, the difference between the fund
1: and the index. That's my riff. I probably agree with you, and probably it's probably worth giving context. When we build a portfolio, we're more likely to buy Asia yeah. that has an exposure to India. Yeah. I think because there's uh, there is I mean not uncertainty it's a lot of concentration into a single economy similar to doing it here as well. Yeah. So we'll always look at a look for an Asia strategy rather than emerging markets and one that has a significant exposure to India anywhere from 50, 15 to thirty percent. Um, I've always found that interesting because you you essentially you're buying demographic trends and societal trends that are s- similar across the region, um, and we tend to find it less volatile when you go multiple countries rather than just one economy. Yeah,
0: yeah. Boring. I, yeah, no, I agree. I, I guess the question is, if you're in, investing in India directly, you, the thing, I'm guessing the thing that building wealth in silence here wants is purely to get growth. And so this should probably be in your satellite exposure if it's anywhere, rather than, you know, broad-based. Cause you're taking a lot of country risk, you're taking um, currency risk. So you wanna make sure that um, your position sizes Uh, accordingly and in i don't know about you drew but just as a kind of broad strokes it's not maybe it's not very friendly to say this but i actually do prefer in some instances i do prefer active management in some of these countries yeah because there is still um inefficiencies that can be exploited definitely it's not always case. so you don't just go and buy any fund manager but the fmex managed fund which is listed on the stock exchange that's from fidelity they do a lot of work in emerging markets, so I'd encourage you to go check that one out as well. Um, List of product, yes, um,
1: but it provides an active exposure. Yeah, definitely. I'd share share your view. It's it's inefficient. Most of these countries mm-hmm. world which rewards active should reward active management. Should reward.
0: Yeah, for the most part, it's more. Yeah, you're going to get information, or maybe not information symmetry, but you're going to get uh, benefits of these economies and these stock exchanges not having the same coverage you know, a better appreciation of governance. One of the big reasons, and a lot of people overlook this, that the Australian stock market has been the best performing in the world is because of our governance and our kind of getting to being a first world country and um, being resource, resource rich, of course, which protects, protected by property rights. It's a very fruitful place to invest. So that's where having that expertise on the ground, people that understand when it's not so clear cut, which companies are going to manage that and profit. Um, it's useful, definitely. Cool. So that's a very, very, very long episode, Drew. <laughs> um, so if you do have a question, please send it in to us. Um, if you like the format, please let us know on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you get uh, your social media. You can send a question through to us. There'll be a link in your podcast player, so you can do that now. You can also get in touch with Drew at waddlepartners.com.au. There's a contact us page there. Go and check that out. Uh, if you're interested in financial planning, doesn't matter where you are in the country. I think you're jetting off to Adelaide Adelaide and Perth this week. yeah. Adelaide and Perth. So the man can get on a plane. (laughs) He has done it before. Um, And then to Noosa. In October, yeah. Yeah, Noosa in October. So, geez, all the good places. So uh, be sure to get in contact with Drew. You can find me on Twitter at Owen Rask, or you can head to the website and find out more about what we do. Drew, mate, absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Always a pleasure. Thanks.